Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, you're very welcome back. 1800 Thank you for those questions for Frances O'Hanlon and we'll package them together and we will um, email them to Frances and she will address them uh, next time round. But uh, thank you for your your constant interest in that uh, piece. Now, it's time for Global Politics. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. Good to see you today. Very interesting piece you're making reference to here. Um, It's a BBC uh, Russia editor, and he's talking about the, I I suppose, the two years of war in Ukraine and how it changed Russia, with Putin as being the main character. Yeah, and change is the word, change, dramatic change, I think. His name is Steve Rosenberg. He's People will be familiar with him. He's the correspondent with the BBC for Russia. He's, I suppose, lucky to still be in Russia. I know many of his colleagues have been kicked out of the country, but obviously he's a respected journalist there. But he wrote a piece last week, kind of charting the evolution of Russian society over the past two years and it is it is staggering to, to, to say the least. Since the Russian invasion things have completely changed. I mean Russia has become this totalitarian anarchic almost state. We've seen it in the past few weeks with the death of Alexei Navalny uh, and the tragedy that that has yeah. brought. We're reminded out of the second anniversary of the war of Ukraine uh, President Zelensky speaking over the weekend saying 31,000 Ukrainian troops have died in this invasion. The Russians are very reluctant to release statistics about their own rate of casualty and I suspect they won't. We won't get a good idea of that but what really interested me about this piece was Putin's change we mentioned it off air Putin has evolved from kind of a a politician who was seen as a a moderate who Mm. was kind of open almost to the idea of NATO membership for Russia. There are quotes from him, according to a a poll, 59% of Russians support the idea of Russia joining the European Union. That's from 2001, 59%. uh, NATO and Russia seeking closer cooperation. Uh, Assigned both sides, the real threat to world peace lies not with each other. So where did it all go wrong? I mean, where did this... How did this new Putin emerge? He seemed to kind of emerge from the clouds there after the COVID pandemic, largely. Uh, and it's a really intriguing scenario. And it is, but still we have to go back to 2014 and all that happened there as well. And the it? annexation of Crimea, yeah. and that was a significant that was a significant moment because I guess that was the inception of this current crisis uh, yes. and led to, led to what we're seeing now play out in the battlefields of Ukraine. Putin's annexation of Crimea. Uh, but even then, his relations with Europe were were cosy. I mean, himself and Angela Merkel had a... And I'm an admirer of Angela Merkel, don't get me wrong. uh, But the reliance on Russian gas and Russian energy was there. And Putin used that. He used it as leverage against Europe, I think, uh, to benefit Russia. So a really, really... A really cunning and sly politician. I think we've known that for years, even in his dealings with... Uh, dealing with the outside world, his his foreign policy stance. He's extremely clever. He's extremely cunning. As you mentioned off air, that interview with Tucker Carlson earlier put paid to any notions that he was sick. Yeah. He's very yeah. sharp and he's very with it. And, uh, and, and hugely manipulative. Hugely manipulative. He? And has a huge yeah. intellect is yeah. another thing yeah. uh, that's often forgotten about. He is a clever man, Vladimir Putin. He is, you know... Uh, intrinsically he's an evil man really when you look at it I mean when you look at what has happened to Alexei Navalny and just the 
the tragedy that occurred last Friday week in in that penal colony uh, yeah. to see Russia's and, and Prigozhin, of course, and the whole Wagner Prigozhin thing. as well. Yeah. There are others. There's another yeah. guy, Vladimir yeah. Karamurza, who has a similar similar stature to Navalny, maybe not quite at his level of popularity or fame, but he's being holed up in a Russian prison as well. Uh, so you have all these figures, potential opposition figures, and let's not forget that Putin is heading into a presidential election next month in March in which he's going to coast home with almost all of the vote. Uh, it may as well, it's a non-runner the election really. It's farcical what is happening, but that will cement his hold on power further. And the 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 Russian editor, Steve Rosenberg, does he indicate how ordinary people in Russia feel about what's happening and feel about Putin? Yes, and that is the thing. And he cites the fact that they have become increasingly reluctant in recent years to express opinions uh, that go against the Kremlin line. And you'll have noticed this in in news reports, in the, in the reports we're seeing each evening in the news. Uh, Russian citizens are reluctant. I mean, you have some brave souls who come out, they were laying flowers for Navalny last week and you have to admire their courage and their bravery. Many others are disengaged by the political system. They, they chose not to comment on it, not to interact with it, presumably for fear of the repercussions uh, should, um, mm. uh, should they say the wrong thing. Is conscription happening in Russia? Is that, how, how, how is that working? Uh, Putin has avoided direct conscription, but he is bringing larger and larger numbers of, of uh, military-age men, we'll say, into the armed forces, into the military. Uh, not to the extent that he's launched nationwide conscription. I think he's, he's very reluctant to do that because the popularity... Uh, that, that that may dent his popularity significantly because ultimately people don't really want to go to war even though there is an acknowledgement. Of course, mm. Putin still isn't painting this as a war. It's a special military operation as far as those inside in Russia are concerned. Uh, but there isn't full conscription yet. But I think there's a pathway slowly to it. The, the really threatening thing is that Russia has massive manpower in in, in contrast to Ukraine. And if we look at the battlefield right now, I mean, the war, it's tilted in Russia's favour. There is no point denying that. We had that Ukrainian, that failed counter-offensive last year. We have reluctance on the part of Western nations, including the US, to supply Ukraine with vital weapon supplies. Zelensky coming out over the weekend saying the troops, 31,000 troops, have died. And all the time, Russia building its forces and building a a steady front line there and making gains. And and still Zelensky talking about crushing Russia and winning this war and stuff. I can't see it, though. Yeah, I can't see it either, Fran. I can't see it. And I hate to admit that. I really do. But I just wonder how long that strategy is sustainable from Vladimir Zelensky's part. I mean... Look, the focus has deflected off the Russian, Russia-Ukraine crisis now onto the Middle East, and that has worked against uh, Zelensky. But at some point, there is going to have to be some kind of negotiation. Now, whether that will mean the return of certain territories to Ukraine or whether it will mean... Russia keeps hold of parts of uh, Crimea. Is it today that big meeting is happen, uh, happening in, in the Paris? USA, par, uh, yeah, the palace there. And what uh, Macron has called this has convened he? this yeah. kind of at the last minute as a, a show of solidarity, a show of support to Ukraine. The Taoiseach will be there, Leo Varadkar will be there, along with about 20 other Western leaders. Uh, they're all going to Paris for a kind of a show of solidarity with Ukraine. 
But it strikes me that there doesn't seem to be a plan there. Aside from, obviously, suppose weapons deliveries and stuff like that, and, and weapons deliveries are being threatened, there is no clear pathway forward. There is no pathway to formal peace talks being negotiated. So it's a real, it's a treacherous situation at this point because people will continue to die. I mean, people mm. will continue to die out in the battlefields there. And and you can't mask the reality of that for and, for and, both sides. And finally, before we move on from this, what what about sanctions and how sanctions are affecting Russia? Because again, in the Tucker Carlson piece, and I mean, there was a huge element of propaganda to it. But he he showed himself in the supermarkets. The supermarket shelves are all full and the like. What what about the effect of sanctions? Yeah, Russia has constructed a war economy, and it has done so incredibly. Uh, by all accounts, it has managed to fortify its economy against uh, against the sanctions. Quite punitive sanctions, it has to be said. I mean, sweeping sanctions imposed on the, the Russian regime. I think the EU have imposed 14 sets of them in all, in total. The Americans, something similar. But it hasn't seemed to... I mean, the Russian economy grew last year, which is astonishing when you consider the amount of pressure that it's under. It's seeking help from third countries, from other nations, the likes of North Korea, the likes of... Uh, those Central Asian republics, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, uh, it is using kind of loopholes in the sanctions regime uh, to circumvent the West's uh, rules and regulations. So it is surviving. Russia is surviving in the face of these sanctions. Now, the longer they hold out, the more biting they will become. It's worth saying that. And I, I don't think Vladimir Putin can survive them forever. I think there will come a point when when Russia really does begin to feel these sanctions starting to bite uh, and when parts of the Russian economy do start to crumble. But for now, for now at least, uh, the the Russian economy seems to be relatively stable and on a relatively good footing, which is remarkable. It is remarkable indeed. Um, von der Leyen, uh, second term pitch. Um, yeah. Was that unexpected, by the way? Uh, well, to a certain extent. There, there were, I mean, she has supporters and she has, she has critics. She's plenty of both. Put it this way. She's made, we've spoken about it before, she's made a number of notable gaffes, the whole Israeli thing before yes. Christmas. She expressed support for Israel, unequivocal support, and was lambasted by other EU countries and other EU leaders uh, for taking too much of a a solo line on that but she has always been favoured to run for, for a second term a second five year term she is president of the European Commission yes. so just to remind people the European Commission is the body it's effectively the it's an executive branch of the European Union it's like the European bureaucracy it's the bureaucracy of the European Union and it's headed up by the Commission President along with 27 commissioners we have commissioners for each country Mairead McGuinness of Fine Gael is our commissioner it used to be Phil Hogan we had that whole debate I won't go there uh, but von der Leyen is uh, relatively stable in position she's presided over a, a relatively good term in office. I mean, she has managed the COVID pandemic skillfully enough. She has managed the war in Ukraine and and kind of collaborated with other Western leaders to... Mm. Uh, to and, and push the green agenda. And course. push the green agenda, yeah. most importantly. Yeah, yeah has is, really... Is she moving away from that now? Is she... There are slight... Because of, I suppose, the allegiances in the European Parliament, the European Parliament is going to be swept by the far right. Well, swept, maybe not swept, that's too far a term, but certainly uh, the far right are expected to be the dominant parties after this year's European elections. And I think... Uh, 
Ursula von der Leyen is acutely aware of that and she's acutely aware that in order to regain her position as Commission President, she is going to have to uh, gain the support of some of these far-right figures. So she has kind of rolled back in her support of certain green initiatives, certain green policies uh, and taken a kind of a softer stance on that in contrast to previously. It's very interesting really because the the EU green agenda forms a core part of European Union politics now. I mean, it is something that the EU is invested heavily in. Uh, it's pouring huge amounts of money into the into sustainable economy, into the green economy. Uh, and von der Leyen herself has been a champion of that. So for her to roll back on some of those promises will be a difficult take and a difficult thing to put to voters. But it looks like it's something she's going to have to do. She's a notoriously hard worker, she said, to sleep in her office in the Berlin on in Brussels uh, to that extent. So she is she is very much committed to this job. She's a German. She's a former Defence Ministry of mm. Germany and she a member of the CDU party. So it's worth... She is kind of a, a right-wing conservative, uh, probably socially liberal, economically conservative as a politician. That's her ideological stance. But certainly at the moment, it doesn't really look like she has any main challengers for the job of EU Commission post. I would expect her at this point uh, to to take the job again. Yeah, I as an old hippie, of course, my concern about her is that notion of defending Europe and a defence agreement for for all the the states. I mean that that is in her portfolio. Yeah, it, and uh, that is in the minds of EU leaders. Yeah. Emmanuel Macron has has you know uh, has advocated for that. He's another one, as of other senior EU uh, leaders and and military figures. That is kind of the establishment of a joint defence partnership within Europe and that obviously would have repercussions for Ireland because of our neutrality stance and that's why I think you know the, the, both the Taoiseach and the Tónaiste have been very careful around their wording on neutrality I mean Ireland has a has a, a good history of maintaining a neutral stance and I you know personally think it's important we probably do maintain that uh, going into the future but you have others there who are military hawks, so to say, uh, so to speak, and they are kind of advocating a, a tougher line that Europe needs to pool together defence spending. It needs to develop a joint, uh, a comprehensive defence forces in order to protect against threats like Russian aggression uh, and threats from further afield. So there are there are justifiable arguments for it and there are there are ones against it as well. It's a difficult one. It's a difficult one for von der Leyen. She'll tr- probably kind of tread the middle ground in relation to it. Uh, uh, I think myself, she's probably more of a, a military dove than she is a hawk. Uh, in in other words, she isn't a, as keen to go into direct conflict as as might be suggested, has been reported. That's just from my reading of the situation from the various reports I've read on her. But certainly military spending and military finance will play a, a prominent role in, in the campaign. Very interesting. We ask you to look at a historical uh, figure and uh, Benito Mussolini, il duce. Um, wh- wh- what about him? What, what makes him worthy of your... Well, he's. Your profile. I suppose he's not worthy if we look at it. He's one of the infamous <laughs> dictators of yes. the 20, 20th century and, and Com- really. A complex character. A though. complex character and, you know, preceded Hitler in many ways, rose to power prior to Hitler. We, yeah. Hitler st- stole his thunder, I think, in the Second World War when Italy was very much depleted of resources, but Mussolini had quite a lengthy tenure prior to, uh, prior to the Second World War. You know, he had kind of. Uh, 
escapades in, in Africa and different countries, rose up. He was a journalist. He founded the Avanti newspaper, rose up through the ranks and eventually established effectively a military dictatorship in 1922 in Italy, putting all of Italy under his control and presided over a number of kind of controversial agreements, bringing certain cities into into Italy's orbit, certain other countries, uh, African countries. His foreign policy was based on the, the fascist doctrine of spazio vitale, which, is mean, which means living space. So that was to extend... Italy's living space, extend its territories, extend its borders. And you'll recall Hitler had a similar policy, Lebensraum in, in Germany, in which he wanted to extend kind of the, give give Germany people breeding space or Very living space. So do you think Mussolini influenced... I think there was direct Hitler? inspiration yeah, there. Wow. Yeah, just yeah. From, from my reading of it, I can't see it any other way. I mean, uh, and as well as that, his annexations, he annexed the city of Fiume in Italy into the, after the Treaty of Rome in 1924. Through the Tirana treaties, he turned Albania into an Italian protectorate. So he did lots of things to incorporate lots of different places in Europe into, uh, into Italian territory and was quite popular, obviously, within his own country. I mean, we forget this because, because figures like Hitler and Mussolini were so notorious and so sadistic, ultimately, we forget how popular and how hard a grip they had on their home countries. He was obviously a very popular leader. Uh, and throughout the 1920s, he maintained that popularity. It was in the 30s that his his stature started to fade somewhat and his popularity started to ebb. Uh Italy. My understanding is, though, that he didn't immediately get into bed with Hitler. I mean, they, no, no. There, were, there was a reluctance there. There was yeah. a reluctance there initially, and it took a bit of coaxing and kind of uh, pushing on Hitler's side. It was only really when the Italian economy really started to struggle and the wars of the 1930s had cost Italy huge amounts of resources and capital and finance. It was then that Mussolini kind of uh, gravitated towards Hitler because I suppose he was desperate for support and he was desperate for some kind of military alliance to keep Italy going. And ultimately that decision to go to go into direct conflict with the Germans alongside the Germans to to, to join the the Allied powers or whatever was a fatal error and it led to the downfall of Italy. It led to his death. He had kind of an ignominious... What, what happened to him in the end? He was, that's very interesting. Yeah, story, he was hung it? upside down along with his, his mistress, his wife, in I think some Alpine region of northern Italy having tried to flee the country uh, towards the end of World War II. So kind of a a humiliating end to his life, which I think few would have seen coming for when, when you consider he was this great dictator of the 1920s, this all-powerful, all-consuming dictator. And for him, for it to yeah. end in such a way was astonishing, really. There's, there's a very interesting story. I'm not sure if you're across it, but a, an Irish woman attempted to assassinate mm. him. Did, mm. are you, you, you and across the story, I am indeed. Yeah. I've heard about it. Her name escapes me now, but... Uh, there, me too, yeah. But uh, there was a great RT doc on one documentary That's about I it. Heard, yeah. uh, and only for the gun failed, I think, to... She nearly right. had him. She, she nearly had him. him. And imagine how that could have changed the course of history. Just imagine, I mean, <laughs> to change the course of World War II for actually for a start, yeah. you know. Uh, so there are amazing subplots to it and amazing 
he's a fascinating, he's definitely an intriguing character. I'd encourage people to read up about him uh, because for all his his evil and his, you know, his sadistic tendencies, he was a, a skilled politician in his own right and clearly a very clever man, a little bit of like Vladimir Putin, Indeed. a very and intellectual man. Whenever we get chatting, we always run out of time, Thomas. But if, if you were to pick one thing that we should look uh, for over the next week, uh, look to, well, what do you think? What's I think one? I think Sunak, Rishi Sunak, uh, or Mark Ruta, he's the former Dutch Prime Minister. He's still Dutch Prime Minister, in fact, because the Netherlands has failed to form a coalition government prior, yes. following its election in November. But Mark Rutte is the outgoing Prime Minister of the Netherlands. He's favoured to take the NATO top job off Jens Stoltenberg, the current incumbent. So that will be a very interesting one. I think myself he's a good candidate, safe pair of hands, very solid politician, solid performer uh, and should perform well in the role. So watch out for him. Mark Rutte, the former or outgoing Dutch Prime Minister. What a time in history to take, take over NATO. Like, indeed, oh. indeed, certainly. Thomas, great to see you as always. Thanks, Pleasure, Fran. Thanks Thank very you. much indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. 